In these Sunday evenings, we've been looking together at, at the message of some of the books of the Bible, of the New Testament particularly. And we've come in our series now to the message, the letter of Paul to the Thessalonians, the second letter of Paul to the Thessalonians. By the way, if some of you would like to utilize the Bibles that are in the pews, please feel free to do so, to follow along on these. And uh, some of you, Sue, would you get some out of the other racks there for some in the choir? Thank you. Second Thessalonians. This is the same church that we looked at last week in the first letter, to which the first letter was written, uh, now called Salonica, up in Greece, and is still a major city of that part of the world. And as you remember, Paul had gone to this city after having left the city of Philippi, where he had been put into prison, and uh, difficulties had arisen, and he was driven out of Thessalonica, and because of persecution... And therefore, these letters to the Thessalonians reflect the persecution that this church was undergoing. Uh, A difficult time. Things were tough in Thessalonica. Because not only was there persecution of the Christians, they were being treated like uh, dirt on on the streets. But as we saw last time also, sexual evil was openly tolerated within the city in a Greek community. And law and order was very difficult to enforce. Poverty was widespread and conditions were very, very trying in Thessalonica. Before Jesus Christ left this earth, he said that there was, that he would return. And before he returned, he said there would be a time when of difficulty and of widespread lawlessness in which Uh, the seams of society would come apart and uh, lawlessness would be so rampant and disorders, violence and riot so widespread that he said men's hearts would literally fail them for fear of looking after the things that were coming on the face of the earth. And he predicted, as many of you know, uh, in in a very remarkable passage, the character of the intervening age that would follow his ascension into heaven and before his return, and that it would culminate in this kind of a widespread lawless condition, which would result, he said, in a time of great tribulation, which he said has never been, there's never been the like of since the beginning of the world, no, nor ever would be. Now, when these Thessalonians were going through their time of trouble, Many of them thought they were in that time of tribulation. Things were so tough there that uh, they began to wonder if perhaps they were not in what they called the day of the Lord, this predicted time when the prophets of the Old Testament had said there would come a time of great judgment and of difficulty on earth. And it's to answer some of these problems that Paul writes his second letter. The first letter he wrote to comfort them as they were disturbed about their loved ones who had died and uh, had been laid in the grave. But this second letter is written to correct them about certain misunderstandings that they had about the day of the Lord and this time of trouble. There are three chapters in this little letter, and it's interesting that each one of these chapters 
is a correction of a very common attitude that many people still have today about uh, disturbing times. The first chapter is devoted to a correction of the attitude of discouragement in the face of difficult and frightening times. These Christians, he says in verse 4, were undergoing persecutions and afflictions. And they were bearing up with good grace, as good as possible. But nevertheless, many of them were getting discouraged. And there was rapidly growing in this group of Christians, young Christians, the attitude that is always prevalent whenever times are rough. An attitude of, what's the use? Why try anymore? There's no justice. Everything is always against us. Why try? Why not give up? And to counteract that attitude of discouragement, the apostle wrote to them in chapter 1 to remind them that there was coming a day which he called the day of recompense, or the day when God would repay them for the difficulties they were going through. And in this letter, in this chapter, you find that day described. Paul says, this is the evidence, or that is your steadfastness, is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be made worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering, since indeed God deems it just to repay or to recompense with affliction those who afflict you and to grant rest with us to you who are afflicted when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance upon those who do not know God and upon those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they shall suffer the punishment of eternal destruction and exclusion from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at in all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. You and I haven't gone through much persecution. But I think if we'd been perhaps part of that uh, body of Jews who were terribly persecuted under Hitler, or were right now perhaps in Red China undergoing some of the difficulties that Christians have had to undergo in that, uh, in that uh, bloody time and country, or in other parts of the world where intense persecution breaks out, I think we'd appreciate the meaning of these words. Because Paul is reminding these people that God has not forgotten them. That he is going to straighten things out at last. And anybody going through a time of great persecution always looks for this. They say, isn't there going to be a time when this injustice is corrected? How can a man like Hitler get by? with putting putting six million Jews to death. Isn't there a hell for a man like that? Or some of the other terrible injustices that are prevalent on the face of the earth all over today. Isn't there a day when things are going to be straightened out? And Paul says, yes, there is. There's a day coming when he says there will be a repayment made to three groups of people. First, to these believers, he said, who are undergoing their difficulty The very trials that they're undergoing, he says, is making them worthy of the coming kingdom of God. That's an interesting aspect of suffering. It does something to us. 
It makes us able to take it. It puts fiber in our being and strength in our uh, our muscles and our our moral uh, equipment so that we're able to take it. After all, that's what difficulty always does. And then he says there will be a day of recompense to the unbelieving. There's going to come a time when God will set them straight. When these who have misused their opportunity of service in life will face a righteous judge who knows the thoughts of the hearts and he will uh, execute vengeance upon them. Two things, vengeance and exclusion from the presence of the Lord. You know, there are a lot of people who who uh, don't like the idea of hell because it's been pictured as a fiery furnace sort of place where uh, people in chains are dragging around and and being burnt all the time and never able to do anything about it. And the Bible does use some symbols of hell that uh, reflect that image or that idea. But hell is really what is described here. It's exclusion from the presence of the Lord. Because God is the source of everything that's good. Beauty and truth and life and love and joy and peace and grace and strength and forgiveness. All those things come from God. No other source. And if a man won't have them, then God finally says to him, All right, I've been trying my best to get you to take these. But if you won't have them, then you can have your own way. And they're shut out from the presence of the Lord. And if they're shut away from the source of all greatness and goodness and truth and beauty, then what's left? Well, nothing but the opposites. Darkness, death, danger, fear, anxiety, worry, distress, all these other things. Well, that's what they'd been dishing out. God's, and Paul says that's what they finally obtain. God lets them have their own way. That's the worst thing that can happen to you. Do you know that? God gives them up, as Paul says in Romans. He says, all right, you can have your own way. And when they get it, it's the last thing they want. Well, then there's a third person who's, who's repaid here. It's the Lord himself. He will come, Paul says, on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at in all who have believed. Now, notice what he says. He doesn't say he's going to come to be glorified by his saints. Oh, I know that Revelation draws a picture of all the redeemed hosts gathering around and singing praises to God. And there will be choirs in heaven, of that I'm sure. And they'll sing great songs of praise to God. I always appreciate the story of that great uh, of that fellow who loved to sing bass who said he had a dream one day and he dreamed that uh, he he was in heaven and the whole choir the great mass voices of thousands and thousands of people were were singing the praises of God and he was alone in the bass section and they were singing these out in great volume and finally the director St. Peter, I guess, stopped and said, A little less volume in the bass, please. (laughs) 
And I think that's how many of us will feel when we get there. You see, God doesn't come to be glorified by his saints, but in them. It isn't God that is on display in that day. It's his people. He puts them on display and lets the world see what he's done in them. And that glorifies him. As the world sees the wisdom and the greatness and the might of of God who can take a human being who's self-centered and torn up inside, filled with anxieties and fears and inabilities, and teach him how to walk in quietness and calmness and peace and strength and joy, ridden of his guilt and of his fears, and make him a man as God intended a man to be, that's the greatest display the universe will ever see. And that glorifies God. That's what Paul says is coming in that day. Well, somebody says, well, isn't this exactly what, what Karl Marx said? That religion, after all, is nothing but the opiate of the people? That all that the church has to say to people that are suffering is, well, just wait, there's coming a day when God's going to set everything straight. Endure your sufferings. Put up with it and grin and bear it, and everything's going to get all right someday. Pie in the sky, by and by. Isn't that what they say? Yes, that's what they say. And there is coming a day in which these things are going to be straightened out. But we also ought to recognize that there's never been a government that has really worked for the good of the greatest number for which governments are established that has not been based upon godliness. Listen to these words from the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident. You may argue with this, friend, but the founders of our country didn't argue about this. They said, we hold these truths to be self-evident. They're so obvious that you don't need proof for them. What? That all men were created. Created. Equal. And were endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Among which are life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And that governments are established and ordained to protect these rights. Well, that's what's made this country one of the greatest countries in the world. But today we're living on the spiritual capital of our forefathers. And it's rapidly diminishing. And to the degree that the country is losing its strength and its power, it's because we are forsaking these great godly principles. And yet, no matter how good the government, there's always injustice. There's always someone who's being mistreated. And Paul says to those people, don't worry. God's going to straighten things out yet. Now in chapter 2, you have the uh, another reaction to disturbing times. It's that of fear. Listen to these opening words of the second chapter. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our assembling to meet him, we beg you, brethren, not to be quickly shaken in mind. 
or excited. Really, the word is troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, purporting to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Evidently, these people had gotten a letter from somebody signed by the Apostle Paul, but it was a forgery. And it was telling them that they were in this terrible time of trouble and that they all they had to look forward to was worse times. And Paul writes to correct that, and he says, now don't be, don't be worried, don't be troubled, don't be afraid. And in fact, he uses a very interesting phrase here. He says, don't be shaken in your mind. You know what we'd say today? (laughs) Don't blow your mind over that. Literally, don't be shaken out of your wits by what's happening. And there are a lot of people that are in this condition today, they're afraid of what's happening. Fear uh, hounds them everywhere they go. I think many of our young people today are facing this because they don't know that God's in control of events. They're afraid. They go to bed with a fear so disembodied they can't get hold of it. And they strike out against the conditions around them because they're afraid of what's coming. Well, Paul says, look, I want to point out something to you. In my last letter, he said, I wrote to you about our gathering together unto Jesus. When he comes, he's going to, as he said there in that first letter, he, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout from the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, and the dead in Christ will be raised, and we which are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. That's our gathering together unto him. But now he says, don't confuse that with the day of the Lord. That's not the same thing. This day of the Lord, this terrible time of judgment, is not the same as our gathering together unto him. And so don't be disturbed in your mind. But now having having uh, introduced the subject of the day of the Lord, he goes on to tell them what it will be like and when they can tell when it's coming. He says to them, let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. Now, I don't like that word rebellion. I don't think that's what he really said. Actually, he used a word here which literally translated means the departure. And of course, if you would mean by it a departure from the faith, then it's a rebellion or an apostasy. But it really means this, the departure. Well, what departure? The one he just talked about. The gathering of the saints, of the, of the believers unto Christ. The departure of the church behind the scenes to be with the Lord in his presence, in his second presence on earth. So he says that has to come first. And then he says, will be the man of lawlessness is revealed. The son of perdition who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, this is an amazing passage. When Jesus was here, he offered himself to the Jewish people as the promised Messiah. And they rejected him, by and large. So that John begins his gospel by saying, He came unto his own, and his own received him not. And Jesus said to them, when he was about to be crucified, 
I am come in my Father's name, and you receive me not. Another will come in his own name, and him you will receive. And by those words, he painted the picture of one who was to come, who would appear to be a deliverer to the world, whom Paul here calls the man of lawlessness, the son of perdition, who would be an utterly godless individual, and yet so remarkable a character that he would make people actually accept him as a divinely empowered being who could deliver them from their difficulties. Now, it's very interesting to me to notice today the hue and cry that's developing all over for this man. Uh, statesmen, historians, politicians, and others are saying repeatedly today more and more, what we need is a single leader, a worldwide leader who can take us out of this mess, who can unite all the forces of the various countries and bring us out into harmony and peace. And there's developing this widespread call for this kind of a man. And he's coming, he will be manifest, says Paul, in the temple of Jerusalem. Now, when Paul wrote this letter in about 52 A.D., there was a temple in Jerusalem. It had not yet been destroyed. But in 70 A.D., it was destroyed, and there's never been a temple in Jerusalem since. I was in Jerusalem in April and I walked around the site where the temple was built and saw the area, it's still cleared off. Now the Dome of the Rock, a Muslim mosque, occupies the site of the temple. But if you've been reading the newspapers lately, you know that now that the Jews have the old city, there's a great cry developing to build another temple. And it's certain that it will come. Some way they'll find a way to work out the difficulties about this, and they're, they're immense, and to reconstruct another temple on the site in Jerusalem. And it's in that temple that Paul says the man of sin will be manifest. In this, as this period of darkening lawlessness develops on earth. Now notice another thing that Paul says about this. He says, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you this? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way, and then the lawless one will be revealed. Something is... Uh, there was something at work, he said, in his day, which he called the mystery of lawlessness. And you know one of the puzzles of statesmen all through history has been why it is that they never can solve the basic difficulties of the human race? Why is it we can come to a certain point in, in building good government and widespread uh, blessing and welfare and help for all, and then it all seems to crumble and fall apart? And this has been the pattern of history. General uh, Carlos Romulo, who was the Philippine ambassador to the United States, said, We have harnessed the power of the atom, but how can we bridle the passions of men? That's the problem. This lawlessness, a spirit of rebellion against authority, 
which is always the greatest danger to any nation. Vice President Nixon, this past, uh, former Vice President Nixon, this past week, in a speech said that the greatest danger this nation was facing is not the war in Vietnam, but the widespread revolt in our own land. And he's absolutely right. Because when the nation, when people begin to turn against authority, because of this mystery, this hidden, subtle secret of lawlessness operating in the human race, then we're not very far from anarchy. And this is what Paul predicts will happen. But he says there's something restraining it. Do you know what it is? Something through the course of the centuries has been restraining this. Well, Jesus told us, he said to his disciples, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Salt that prevents corruption from spreading. Light that dispels darkness. And it's the presence of the people who of God on earth that restrain the forces of evil. This is a remarkable thing, yet it's the truth. Wherever there is widespread godliness in a country, there's always the opportunity for good government. Wherever that diminishes, and sometimes it diminishes because of forces within the church as well as without, there comes flooding in a spirit of lawlessness. And yet, Paul says that's going to be taken out of the way. And the whole flood of human evil will be let loose upon the earth. And when that happens, there will come the greatest time of trouble that the world has ever seen. And yet, how is it going to end? Well, he says, The Lord Jesus will slay him with the breath of his mouth and destroy him by his appearing and his coming. The coming of that lawless lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and pretended signs and wonders and with all wicked deception. And this is the characteristic of, of, of a lawless spirit. It deceives. It appears to offer something right. But it undermines proper authority. And therefore, it shall be destroyed, says Paul. By the coming of Jesus, and God will send upon men a strong delusion to make them believe what is false, because, so that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And it's going to be manifest at last with the reappearance of the Son of Man, who destroys the destroyer of earth. You know, there's nothing worse than this spirit of lawlessness to undermine and blight and ruin humanity. And uh, as we approach this time, perhaps in human history, it may be ahead of us in the near future. It may be down the stream of ways. No one can tell. We know that a spirit of lawlessness will become more and more evident. Well, Paul encourages them, you see, by reminding them that... Uh, the people of God have another hope. The hope of being gathered together under Christ beforehand. Now chapter 3 deals with the final thing. And the, it's the conduct of these believers in the face of this kind of a situation. And this reflects a third very widespread attitude that many have in times of difficulty. is what we might call fanaticism. 
fanaticism. Because there were certain people in, in Thessalonica who were saying, well, if all these things are happening and we're in this time of trouble, then why go to work? Why not just, just uh, wait until he comes? Uh, why do anything? Why busy yourselves about making a living? Just live and enjoy yourself and wait for his coming. And even in the Christian church they were doing this. And so Paul has to write to them and says in verse uh, um, let's see, verse 6, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who's living in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. Because he says uh, in verse um, Eleven, we hear that some of you are living in idleness, mere busybodies, not doing any work. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus to do their work in quietness and to earn their own living. Brethren, do not be weary in well-doing. A year or so ago, perhaps you read in the paper of a family down in Arizona, I think it was, who decided that we were living in the time of the coming of Christ again. And so they took off and went out into the mountains, found a cave and moved into the cave. And several families got together there and lived in that cave for, oh, I forget how many days it was. And uh, they were waiting for the coming of Christ. They thought they knew the day and the hour. Finally it came and nothing happened. And they rather ruefully and shamefully went back to work. But this is a fanatic reaction. For Paul writes to these Christians and says, now don't do that. As we get nearer this time, remember that your responsibility is to keep on normal living and working with your hands, feeding one another, uh, feeding your own families, and uh, taking care of your responsibility. Because you see, the Christian life is a responsible life. It's a normal, natural life, fulfilling all the responsibilities that God places upon us. So Paul rejects the attitude of fanaticism and says that this is wrong, but that we are to give ourselves to the tasks that God has set before us. Now there you have the letter of Second Thessalonians. Discouragement is answered by looking to the day when God sets everything straight. Fear is answered by reminding them God is in perfect control of human events. And he's not going to allow a thing to get out of, out of time or out of phase. And things will take place as he has predicted they will take place. And we can rest upon his faithfulness. And fanaticism is rejected with a specific command to be busy and at the Lord's work waiting, carrying on, as Jesus said, occupying till I come. And then Paul closes it with a very, uh, a, a very tender gesture. He says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the mark in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. What is? By the words with which he closes the letter. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And if you look at all the letters of Paul, you'll find that that's the way they close.
he always took the pen from his secretary and wrote in his own hand, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. What a wonderful expression this is of the, of the prophet and the power of faith in Jesus Christ. The one who alone is able to solve the problems of an individual's life or of the world in general. And the application, I think, to any individual heart is simply this. God's people are called to be restrainers of lawlessness. And the question I'd like to leave with you tonight is, how much are you operating as a restraint to lawlessness? The measure in which you oppose lawlessness will be the measure in which there is no lawlessness in your own heart and your own life. Let's stand together, be dismissed with a word of prayer. We thank you, our Father, for this look at this letter that comes across almost 2,000 years to remind us that the hope of the church has not grown dim, that the very events which Jesus Christ predicted are finding some degree of fulfillment even in our own time and are moving toward the predicted end. And we thank you, Lord, that we can gather as your people in this day and age and reaffirm our fidelity and loyalty to the one who has loved us and has given himself for us and will come again to be acknowledged by every, every voice, every individual, every knee shall bow and proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In the hope of that, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.